Um, the Torah reading tells us about the birth of the twin children of Isaac and Rebecca, Yaakov and Esav, who, as Kate explained to us, were adversaries from birth. Even before birth, Midrash has it that they were battling within their mother's womb. And this is a metaphor that in many ways continues to our very day. Uh, one that we hope perhaps one day will end soon. According to Jewish tradition, however, it is Esau who becomes the first in a long line of people throughout history who sone Yisrael, who hate the Jewish people. The question is, why is that? How does Esau become associated with such evil? What was it about him that was so bad? From reading the Torah, the pshat, the simple reading of the Torah, you would never know that this is the case. Yes, he's described as having been Yoded Sayad, one who knows how to hunt, as opposed to Yaakov, who's described as being Yoshev Ohalim, a dweller of tents, someone who studies, a student. But what's so bad about being a hunter? When, in fact, the Torah goes on to tell us, Vayahev Yitzchak et Esav kitzayed befiv. Isaac loved Esav because he would put game in his mouth. Esav's being a hunter gave his father pleasure. And despite that, despite the fact that the Torah itself tells us very little about Esav, our sages, our ancestors, attempted to fill in the gap by providing us with incident after incident after incident of Esau's wickedness and cruelty. In fact, there's a midrash that exclaims, all the crimes that the Holy One, blessed be God, detests were committed by Esau. So evil is Esau that not just crimes against the Jewish people, but all the crimes that God detests were committed by Esau. None of this is found in the Bible itself. So why is it that the rabbis seemingly go out of their way to paint such a negative picture of Esau? Why is it that he becomes the epitome of evil? From the perspective of our rabbis, Esau came to represent the archetype of our people's worst enemies. And we have a long list of them. From Pharaoh to Haman, to Hadrian, to Torquemada, to Adolf Hitler, to Hamas. But these enemies we knew or at least we should have known, especially vis-a-vis -vis Hamas, if we had been paying attention to what they'd actually been saying and took them seriously rather than thinking that there was somehow or another that they would be tamed by being responsible for another people, right? We should have known exactly where they stood because they never hit it. They never hit it. They were quite transparent about their intentions vis-a-vis -vis the Jews. 
Esau, according to our ancestors, was different. He presented himself as a friend. Esau tried to pass as a good guy. He presented himself as being well-meaning, and people fell for it. People like his father, Isaac. Our rabbis tell us that when Esau would come home, Isaac would ask, where were you today? And Esau would reply, I was in the study hall. And Isaac would proclaim, see how careful my son studies the precepts of Torah. That's what Esau used to do, according to our tradition. He would try to fool people into thinking he was the good son, when in fact he was a brutal murderer. That he was a man of peace, when in fact he was a man of war. That he was a friend of the Jewish people, when in fact he was a vicious enemy. What Hamas perpetrated on October 7th is unbelievable. And I could get into all the details of it, much of which you already have heard, but when I went to Israel a week ago, I can tell you it's unbelievable and yet it happened. And the evidence for its happening is overwhelming. There's, first and foremost, the evidence of Hamas themselves, who recorded much of it, who are proclaiming it in English and in Arabic of what their intentions are. If only people would listen and take that seriously. Not only did Hamas record it on their own devices and put it on social media, but they very cruelly recorded on their victims' cell phones the torture and the execution that they perpetrated, and then they put it back in that person's pocket so that when the authorities and their families would take out the cell phone and look to see what was the last thing that their beloved person went through before they died or were kidnapped, it was Hamas's greeting. The evidence is overwhelming, first and foremost, from Hamas itself. It's overwhelming from the survivors and the consistency of the testimony that they continue to provide. And it's overwhelming from the forensic evidence that is left behind. It is unbelievable the cruelty, the barbarism that Hamas perpetrated, and yet it happened. But what's even more unbelievable and inexcusable and frightening is the blind eye that so many in the world are taking vis-a-vis -vis the difference between Hamas's attack and Israel's response. Yossi Klein Halevi wrote recently, uh, I think it was in the Globe and Mail actually, um, that the ancient fear of we as Jews is immutable otherness. But now we're in one of those defining moments in Jewish history when we find ourselves at a moral disconnect between much of the international community. As we struggle to absorb, he writes, the enormity of the October 7th massacre and to confront the worst wave of anti-Semitism since the Holocaust, the trauma of aloneness has returned. 
We are a people, says Balaam in the Bible, a people that dwell alone and shall not be considered amongst the nations. And up until recently, we thought that maybe we might have normalized the Jewish experience through the establishment of the state of Israel. But now, now we again feel alone. We naively had assumed that the massacre would linger in the world's consciousness and that surely those that have played down Israel's fears about security will understand the threat that Israel actually faces on its borders, which is a genocidal terrorist organization determined to remove us from the land. This was no ordinary terror attack, but it was a pre-enactment of their genocidal vision that from the river to the sea, the chant that so many in the pro-Palestinian community are chanting without fully perhaps understanding what it means, but from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, free that is of Jews. And that's why that phrase is anti-Semitic. Because as Yossi writes again, a mere month after the memory of October 7th has already faded and has been replaced with scenes of Palestinian suffering. The massacre that took place to our people has already been absorbed, he writes, into the cycle of violence. The attacks by Hamas didn't happen in a vacuum, said the General Secretary of the UN, citing Israel's 56-year-old occupation of the West Bank. Not of Gaza, it's not occupied. Yes, there is an embargo, which was designed to prevent what just happened, and clearly that policy failed. We Jews readily acknowledge that Israel bears its share of the blame for this conflict. But where's the accountability for the Palestinian leaders? Where's, where does anybody talk about their share of the blame, of the refusal over the years, the rejection of every single peace offering that was ever put on the table. For all the complexity of the Palestinian-Israel tragedy, this for us and for the rest of the world, if there was only moral clarity, shouldn't be complicated. The suffering of innocent Gazans deserves the world's urgent att attention, but not at the expense of moral clarity about the justice of this war. Those who are calling for a ceasefire they don't seem to understand what's at stake. That a ceasefire would allow Hamas to regroup, especially if it doesn't have any mention of the release of the 240 hostages. It would allow them to regroup and to reinforce themselves, and it would reinforce the Jewish people's sense of isolation and aloneness at this moment. We should and do 
Our hearts break for the suffering of the innocent in Gaza. But Yossi writes, how do we compare a deliberate assault on civilians with a war against a terrorist group embedded in a civilian population? In war, the difference between tragedy and barbarism is intent. For some, for some, our outrage of the world's inability or its, the loss of its capacity for moral distinctions is even greater than a lazy comparison between Israel and Hamas. Because many in the West at this moment, many of those on the college campuses and in the pro-Palestinian community, they do indeed make a distinction between Hamas and Israel. Hamas is good, Israel is evil. In this telling, it's Israel that is guilty of waging a genocidal war. And ironically, Israel is excused of genocide by the very people who are chanting the genocidal slogans. October 7th ended any ambiguity about what a Palestinian state from the river to the sea would mean for the millions of Israelis reduced to a helpless minority within it. It would mean genocide. And these words, genocide, apartheid, and so forth, are being waved about and bantied about with such frequency they have lost their meaning. Denying the Jewish people the right to their narratives is an echo of the past Christian doctrine of supersessionism, writes Yossi, which regarded Jews as interlopers in the biblical story they had created, when the church instead had become the true Israel Replacing the fallen Jews had rejected the Messiah, were in turn rejected by God. Shifting the blame of genocide from Hamas to Israel is indicative of a deeper assault of the Jewish story. Because what it means is, is that for us, the Jewish people, for anti-Zionists, we are not an indigenous people returning home, but white European colonialists stealing another people's land. What it means is we don't even belong in our own history. Now, these same points, these very same questions can be asked in the Torah reading as well of our patriarch Yitzhak. How did he fall for Esau's deception? Why didn't he see Esau for who he really was? In the same way, why can't, you know, why are all these people falling for the deception? Not paying attention to history, to facts, to listening to the actual spoken words of the terrorists. The Torah tells us that Isaac was blind, but when our sages speak of blind, they speak of something more than just being blind in the physical sense. 
Isaac was blind to the reality that was in front of him. He didn't see things as they really were. Now Midrash suggests that maybe he was blind because at that moment of the Akedah, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, Isaac's laying there and the angels are shedding tears and these angelic tears fell right into his eyes and blinded him. Now there's something extremely important in this Midrash. What is the nature of Isaac's blindness? He was too angelic. He was too naive. At that moment, perhaps what the rabbis are saying is he went through a near-death experience and he was about to be sacrificed on the altar. And so in coming so close to death, he now felt that everything must be done to avoid such confrontations. He became risk-averse, so much so that he became blinded to when it was necessary to fight. So he must have figured, yeah, I know Asaph is bad, but maybe if I make a deal with him, maybe if I give him some money from, from someplace else, maybe if I make him responsible for some people, he'll tame. Responsibility will tame him. Maybe if I give him my blessing, Maybe if I give him what he wants, he'll come around. He'll be more moderate in his behavior. Fortunately for Isaac, he had Rebecca, who was able to point out his naivety, who was able to show him that there's no doing business with people hell-bent on destruction and death. And the Torah tells us, And Isaac trembled very exceedingly, because then for the first time he saw the reality before him. So we see the reality that's before us. The reality of a necessity to fight Hamas and to ensure that there's no victory for them. And the reality to do so in a very complicated military theater to minimize innocent lives lost. But there's another reality before us, and that is the blindness of so much in the international community who are so embedded in good values of the release of oppression and colonialism and anti-war and pro-peace. These are values we share, but not to the point where we are blinded into inaction and blinded by the reality that is before us. So what do we do? Perhaps the only thing we can do at this moment is what David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, said so many years ago. It doesn't matter what the Gentiles say, only what the Jews do.
Shabbat Shalom.